Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 217 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Kiz Johnson. She's the author of the novels The Fox Woman and Fudoki, as well as the short story collection At the Mouth of the River of Bees. She's worked at Tor Books, Wizards of the Coast, Dark Horse Comics, and Microsoft, and is currently an assistant professor of creative writing at the University of Kansas. And we'll be speaking with her today about her novella The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow, a feminist take on H.P. Lovecraft. And now, here's our interview with Kiz Johnson. All right, so we're here with Kiz Johnson. Welcome to the show. Hi. Okay, and so your new book is called The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow. So what's that about? It's a, that's a complicated answer because there's the metafictional answer, which is that it's a sort of commentary on and response to H.P. Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Cadiff, which is one of his better known works. The other answer is that it's the story of a woman of a certain age uh, who goes out on a quest, which makes her a very unusual character um, in the middle of a world, a strange and very bizarre world. Well, right. So, so for people who aren't that familiar with Lovecraft's dream cycle stories, you want to just say a little, little bit about the background of those? Sure. H.P. Lovecraft was writing a lot in the early 20th century. I don't remember the exact dates. And he wrote a series of stories called the Dreamlands stories. It's one of the things they're called. Uh, the idea is that there is a dreamland that certain master dreamers, all male, can get to. Uh, it's a world ruled by these whimsical sort of cosmological horrors and uh, petty, immensely powered gods. The stories are usually very vividly imagined. Uh, and there's a, there are certain characters that turn up again and again. So Randolph Carter is one of his sort of basic characters who he frames the entire dream quest cycle around. And the dream quest of unknown Cadith is Randolph Carter's primary story, which is he find, he sees a mystical city when he is dreaming. He lives in Boston. And he wants to get there, but when he goes to the dreamlands and he's a master there, he finds the gods will not permit him to see it. And so he quests across the dreamlands to get somebody who will let him go to this mystical city that he's seen. Right. My understanding is that Randolph Carter is sort of a self-insert for Lovecraft himself, who suffered from very vivid nightmares throughout his life. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. Randolph Carter turns up uh, a number of times, and it also turns up in stories that are not exactly dreamland stories. Uh, there's one story which, uh, where I think it's the first time we meet him, where he's just the person who's essentially telling the cops about something horrible that's happened. Uh, but yeah, he seems like a very central character to Lovecraft. Right. And there's about 20 or so of these dream quest stories. Did you, how many of them did you reference or use in, the, in your book? Well, I read all of them, many times. Um, <laughs> first off, because I'd read The Dream Quest of Unknown Cadith when I was a little girl, and it was the only one of the Lovecraft stories that didn't scare the absolute daylights <laughs> out of me. So I kept reading it again and again, um, and it always disturbed me a little. It bothered me, uh, and I couldn't have identified at that point why. But I read the other Dream Quest stories just in that, uh, that childhood obsessive way that we track down everything that we think we might possibly like. 
And uh, when I went back to start writing this, I reread all of the dream stories again and again. There was one poem that I was not able to track down. So there's one piece that I didn't actually get to read. And so what is it about these dream stories you think that appeals to you? The protean nature of the world, the way things shift, uh, the way they were full of great wonders. And I grew up a little girl in Iowa, and we didn't have great wonders, really. We had a lot of pigs and soybeans, and which are kind of great, but hmm. not wonders. Uh, and something about this just magical place that he went to, and it was all very encompassable by a little girl. Uh, you didn't have to be sophisticated to understand Lovecraft. You just had to have a good vocabulary. Uh, and so I was able to read them and internalize them in a way that uh, even books like Tolkien, which I read at about the same stage, The Lord of the Rings, I couldn't always follow sort of the bigger emotional movements, um, whereas there are no big emotional movements generally in Lovecraft. Hmm. I mean, in the acknowledgments for this book, you say that you read The Dream Quest of Unknown Cadeth at 10, and you said that you were thrilled and terrified and uncomfortable with the racism, but not yet aware that the total absence of women was also problematic. Yeah, this is something that I I didn't notice. I think most of us didn't at that age. All of the stories I read when I was younger, there were so few insertion points for girls. Uh, we were stuck having to take our choice between the four girls and little women, hmm. or having to take our choice between Eowyn and uh, Galadriel, which was improbable when you're growing up in Iowa, um, or, or uh, uh, Arwen. Um, and it's interesting how they all have vowel names. But, uh, but there really were never that many choices. Um, and when we read, when I was a little girl reading science fiction and fantasy, I didn't have anything much. I would read all of them, even things, even stories like Andre Norton, and it was always guys, 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 guys. And so I would, I was as tomboyish as I could be because that was the only way I could see being part of these worlds. Um, so I didn't notice until rereading it as an adult that the dream quest mentions one human woman. Um, and only one, and it's a farmer's wife. And in the rest, and that's all they say, the farmer's wife was scared the end. Uh, the, uh, and none of the rest of the Dream Quest stories. And I started noticing that the only times that Lovecraft ever uses women, um, they tend to be very negative, very stereotypical. They're evil old grannies, or they're the scared farmer's wife. But they're, even those are so minor. He, it's as though he existed in a world without women at all. And that's one of the things I was doing in Valet Bow is this dreamland is f empty of women almost. There's so few of them. And so the women there are kind of have to band together, kind of uh, understand each other and support each other. But there just aren't that many. So, I mean, what was the specific impetus to write this? I mean, were you, did you just happen to go back and reread the dream cycle stories and then you got the idea or did you get the idea and then you went back and read the stories or like what sort of prompted it? Well, the proximate cause was that uh, I'd been, was that Jonathan Strahan asked me if I wanted to write something. And I had been chewing over an idea before this that wasn't uh, Lovecraft. There's a book by John Myers Myers called Silverlock. Uh, which was written in the 40s. And the conceit is that the Commonwealth of Letters is an actual 
country. And so all of those great classics, uh, those characters all live on the same terrain and they all interact. And it was sort of a big, a big, exciting adventure novel about a guy who ends up in a place where he's fighting Brian and he ends up meeting Beowulf and he meets uh, uh, Menon Lescaux and people like that. But when I read it, I realized that the only females in that were either women of unsteady virtue and uh, innocent girls for whom either good or bad things happened. There just weren't any other types in that story. And of course, that's because in the literature, there really aren't that many types. So I had started thinking before Velvet Bow about what would be in my commonwealth if I were adventuring in a land full of literatures, what would what would my adventures be? And I had started thinking, well, where do you insert yourself as a woman? And especially now that I'm an adult, um, where do I insert myself as an adult woman who is not preoccupied with the things of a 20-year-old? And I found that there really weren't that many people I wanted to be in literature. Um, most of the women were boring or I just didn't see the point and they didn't aspire for big things. There was like a real preoccupation with things that just don't interest me that much, family and home. And there were not enough women going out and doing things. And I started thinking, why? Why are these classics so dominated by this? Not because of the history and conventions of their times or their authors, but more what happens when you insert a, a mature woman into a world into a science fiction or fantasy world. What do you get? And I had just done this exploration with uh, um, with Kenneth Graham's *The Wind in the Willows*, uh, where I had just written a sequel, which will be out from Small Beer next year, um, where I inserted two female animals to say, "What happens to the world?" If we put females in, does it break the world? Does it break the relationships of the male characters? In what ways does it affect the world? And then after that, when Jonathan Strahan asked me if I wanted to write something, I'd been kind of chewing over what's wrong with Lovecraft, and that's what I decided was going to be my next project. I didn't realize just how absorbing it would become or how much time it would take me because I ended up uh, really researching it heavily. I ended up doing tons of research into completely unrelated topics, like uh, um, uh, certain Latin uh, rigged boats and things like that. <laughs> well, yeah, because I, I know you do a lot of research for your stories. And I was kind of curious, you said that you read all these um, Lovecraft stories many times. I mean, did you make some sort of atlas or compendium of names or what, what sort of like background world building stuff did you create? Usually my memory's not good enough to just remember it, but because I had read these as a child, that helped a lot. And I didn't, this time I didn't, I did have a gazetteer and I did have a sort of a list of characters, but mostly I just read them so much that I'd say, oh, oh, wait, wait, <laughs> Pickering, where's Pickering? He's the ghoul, right? He's three quarters of the way through. Let me find him. And then I would go find that section of the book and reread it. And then I would just use that. And actually there are places in this book where I'm, there are direct, uh, chimes with Lovecraft's language, although I didn't try to simulate it, but I'm directly pointing to certain things that he did. Cause I saw in an interview, you said that when you went back to these stories that he was maddeningly vague and that you had to really yes. do a lot of your own invention. Right. I mean, he talks some 
he describes towns and he'll tend to describe them all using the exact same language so that every town feels like it's a sort of mis mix of towers made medieval towers made out of some strange stone combined with like quaint little new england gabled things um, and that's really all the description he gives he'll use a lot of latinate multisyllabic adjectives but they tend to be uh charged adjectives they tend to be charged with emotion not with detail so he'll talk about you know icarus and icarus i-c-h-o-r you know the gooey stuff right um but he doesn't really tell you what the icar looks like or what it smells like or is it you know is it sticky to the fingers or is it slippery to the fingers? And that's just like one tiny detail. When he talks about geography, you know, he, people go across pasture lands, but there's a lot of pasture lands in the world and they all look different. So it, when you say he's somewhat restricted by his geography, Lovecraft, I mean, that he's seeing his pastures, but I decided I might as well see other pastures. And so I made a lot of, within everything he said, I made a lot of sort of uh, tweaks. And when he didn't describe something, like he mentions a number of stars in the night sky, but he doesn't mention how many stars. His assumption, I'm, I assume, is that the night sky looks exactly like our night sky, but that's not written down. So I was able to play around with the sky and make it do different things than his sky does. Well, right. So in, in your in your book, the sky has exactly 97 stars in the sky. Mm -hmm. I was just curious, did, does that number have any significance or how, where did that idea come from? Uh, it would be really funny to say yes, because then people would say, you know, years after I'm gone, perhaps people would be trying to figure it out. <laughs> Maybe she had 97 books about Lovecraft or something. But no, in fact, I picked it because I wanted it to be under 100. Um, he actually cites about... 20 planet, uh, inter or, you know, sort of space objects, including planets. And so these people, to my mind, it's like they're, they're thinking Mars and Venus are also stars and perhaps Saturn as well. So they're not necessarily making a distinction between Algol and Venus, but I just wanted it to be few enough that the sky would be very, very, very dark and that to make the contrast between our sky so much different. Yeah. I mean, I saw that on Tor.com, they posted a map of this dream world. How um, how much of that did you did you draw that map and then they professionalized it? Or did someone like collaborate I, with you on that? Or I did draw the map. My brother is a cartographer. And uh, so I grew up drawing maps. <laughs> like any good fantasist, one of the great delights of writing fantasy is making up your own maps. And that's uh, so I really enjoyed um, putting that map together. Um, I I was thinking somewhat there is there's one classic map that has been drawn that shows up online a lot and I used that as a sort of starting point for some thinking I was doing but mostly I changed everything because I partly because I wanted it to fit into a vertical layout and most of the maps are usually landscape oriented and I wanted something you could actually read on one page of a paperback hmm. Okay, so you mentioned the language in this and that you weren't really trying to imitate Lovecraft's style. I mean, the style in this is unbelievably gorgeous. Um, Thank you. Thank could you, you. Could you just talk about like what approach you took to crafting the specific style in this book? You know, when I started it, I was going to try for Lovecraft's voice. Um, but the more I read it, the less I liked it. 
And the more I realized that I wanted something that was lush, um, but I wanted it to be lush and precise. And that's what I aimed for. Um, I also, at some point, I usually try to experiment with style when I'm writing. So I'll try something in a very austere style or a very florid style. But at some point during the early stages of drafting this, I realized I just wanted it to be my voice. Uh, so it ends up being probably the closest to an unaltered voice for me that I've written, except possibly The Man Who Bridged the Mist, which I wrote a few years back. Um, so I guess that's sort of my natural voice when I'm not trying other things. Because hmm. there were a lot of words in this that I did not know. Uh, are those just all words you know? Or I, I thought maybe you were intentionally trying to mimic that aspect of Lovecraft, the sort of unfamiliar words. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily have added all that. I do know all that vocabulary. <laughs> um, I was a precocious child, and I was bored when, growing up in a small town, so I read dictionaries and encyclopedias. But I think that most of it, I would not have used all of that vocabulary for writing, let's say, an adventure novel set in, you know, 1930s. But I, so I did enjoy being able to use some of that vocabulary. And it was sort of trying to chime with the fact that he, he would have words that when I was a girl, I would look up and I wouldn't find them in any dictionary, hmm. not even the old, uh, the Oxford English dictionary, that gargantuan tome. It wouldn't even be in that. And I was always a little in awe of that. And in fact, there are, I think, two made up words in this, which is sort of my tribute to the fact that I'm not 100% sure he didn't just make those things up. <laughs> is there anything in this that, that actively contradicts anything in Lovecraft's that you, you're like, no, nah, this just doesn't work. I got to completely change that. Huh, that's a really good question. And I haven't, I haven't thought about it that way. Um, the the biggest thing is that uh, in the Dream Quest of Unknown Cadeth, um, uh, when Randolph Carter crosses to, I changed the geography just a little bit, but when Randolph Carter crosses to visit his friend um, Karanis, um, it takes him three days. And I didn't want this to be a three-day trip. I wanted this to be an immense blue, blue sea trip. And so I had to, I didn't want to change the geography but that's why I put in the thing about this sort of mutable geography hmm. that sometimes a thing takes three days, sometimes a thing takes three weeks. You can't trust it. And that's, I think, very appropriate to a world that's being uh, constantly reshaped and re-driven by these whimsical sort of uh, selfish gods. Yeah, no, that's 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 really interesting. I mean, yeah, that, that makes sense because it is a dream world. Um, I guess that's sort of a double-edged sword because – a lot of times in stories about dreams, there's so much of this sense that anything could happen that you lose interest as a reader because there's no rules and it just starts to feel kind of arbitrary. Did you, was that a concern you had at all when writing about the sort of dream world? Absolutely. One of my other favorite books is Alice in Wonderland. And I've thought sometimes about it would be fun to readdress that as an adult. Um, the thing about dreams is that my dreams at least make no sense. I know people who are lucid dreamers or people who have those long, dramatic dreams, but my dreams tend to be just like a fragment of this attached randomly, you know, by one ligament to a fragment of that, and sometimes no ligaments at all attaching them. And fiction that's based on dreams often feels artificial because 
because their dreams are too narrative, or it feels incoherent because their dreams have no narrative and story requires that. So I was very aware of that. And that's why there's a lot more sort of identifying of the number of days things happens happen, I guess, than I would have put into a story set on our planet. Um, I would not have said, well, and it took them five days to get there, um, but it might have taken nine or it could have taken three. And that was because I was constantly trying to re-anchor the reader into the fact that not everything is steady, but this is a fact. Hmm. I actually heard you say in an interview that you don't dream much. I don't. Um, for a lot of years, I was on a medication that that pretty much prevented my dreaming. And I didn't even realize it until I went off that medication and found that all of a sudden I was having dreams again. And they were pretty great. Hmm. I mean, just seeing things at night, I had forgotten that when I was a little girl, sleeping was about my favorite thing to do because dreams were so interesting. Hmm. Actually, when I, I interviewed John Cleese and he told this, told this story that Thomas Edison thought that he got all his best ideas just as he was drifting off to sleep. So he would sit in a chair with holding ball bearings. And then when he fell asleep, <laughs> he would drop them and it would wake him up. So he would just be constantly falling asleep and waking up over and over again. I understand that A.E. Van Vogt would set an alarm all night. And he'd said, I can't remember, Jim Gunn tells his story, whether it was every hour, every 20 minutes, every two hours or something. But he would set alarms all night long. And he would get up, he would write down whatever he had thought. And then he would go back to sleep. And I have to say, that kind of makes sense with the Van Vogt. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the way he writes, because it really does feel like every 700 words, he's forgotten which book he's writing, and he's just writing another one. Well, I thought he had a rule for himself that every 700 words he had to right. introduce some completely unrelated concept. Right. The Van Vogtian scene, where you always bring something new in. Um, and you can really see at the end when he strains to pull it all together, or he just <laughs> you know, sins boldly and refuses to. So it's always very entertaining watching the last chapter of a Van Vogt novel. <laughs> yeah. So did any anything in this book come out of your dreams or did, did dreaming play a role in, in writing this at all? I think so. Um, I think that the landscape in the very last parts when she's uh, in sort of in our plane, um, a lot of those landscapes, while they're real landscapes at night, um, I think I have recollections of dreams where, where I was, would be like walking in yellow cornfields and the sky would be very dark overhead. And that was very, I was very aware of that when I was writing this. Um, there are other things I think like the big, the, the way the deep sea feels that's based in dreams for me. But, um, but it's at no point is there something that I'd say, well, when I was 16, I had this dream and it changed me forever. Although now that you mention it, I do remember dreaming about giant spiders biting my shoulders off. And surely if you can't <laughs> fit that into a Lovecraft story, there is no place for it. So I should have put that in. <laughs> well, man, speaking of the deep sea, just the part where, um, Velid is looking down into the ocean and sees the lights. Right, Man, yeah. That, that, I just thought it was a stunning sequence in this story. Thank you. I, I, I'm. A, I was swept away by it as well. I was just. I had this sense of immense mass, and I mean, a lot of times it's hard to tell in places like plains and on the sea. Um, I take a lot of cruises with my mother, and it's really hard to tell if something is small or far away. And you'll see a boat, and it's like it's either 
a very small fishing boat not too far away, or it's a, a cargo ship a very long distance away, and I cannot tell right away. Uh, we go to Alaska and the glaciers, you'll come up to them and either that glacier is 48 feet high, <laughs> or that glacier is a mile and a half high. And there is nothing to give you a sense of scale unless there's a smaller boat in front of it. And even then you can't because you don't know how big the boat is. And I was thinking about that, just the incomprehensibility of scale that happens when something is outside of our, our experience. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about Bella, your protagonist. Uh, you want to just say a little bit more about her? I wanted to write a... St one thing that always annoys me about older characters in television movies, um, and she's 55, so I'd say she's not older because I'm 56. <laughs> <laughs> so she's really very, she's really the age of sense, I'd like to say. Yeah. But, um, but one thing that's always irritating is that there's a real assumption of cert that there, you can only do and be certain things at that age. But five years ago, I was uh, a rock climber. And I was bouldering V4s and V5s, which is a very high level. Um, and I was, which is none of the people who write about grandmothers making cookies ever imagined that somebody who is a grandmother age could do something like that. That's not to say that all grandmothers can, but there are grandmothers who can. And it would be nice to see those people represented. Um, so I wanted to write something about a character who had had a complicated and rich past. You know, and I'd wanted, I wanted to write about an intellectual who had not always been an intellectual because I find as a new college professor, I'm pushing a lot against people who've never done anything but been college professors and college students. And there's so much out there that they could have done that they didn't do. And that's what I wanted to talk about was a woman who had done all these interesting things, made some decisions to do the right thing, the sensible thing. Um, but still retained many of those skills and also some of the nostalgia for that. When I had to stop climbing, um, it kind of broke my heart a little bit because I was never going to be the person who climbed mountains the same way again. And I wanted Velet to be that. I mean, I did not write her to be autobiographical, but of course she turned out to be more autobiographical than any of my other characters ha have ever been. Right. Well, and, and, and like you, she's a college professor, which is kind of what kicks off the plot of the story. You want to just tell, say a little bit about what the, the setup is that sets off this story? Velet Bo is the professor of mathematics at Ulthar Women's College. Ulthar is a town in uh, Lovecraft's dreamlands. And that's where, uh, where Randolph Carter meets lots and lots of cats. There's, in fact, a short story called The Cats of Ulthar. Um, so Ulthar is packed full of sort of untamed and also domesticated cats. And I figured that it was what he says is quite minimal. It's a town with a, a tower in the middle of a hill and there's a priest up there and he plies the priest with alcohol to get some information out of him. But I thought there have to be schools in this place. So I decided there's an Oxford style university in Ulthar and that like Oxford in the 30s, which is within a decade of when Lovecraft was writing his books, there were women's colleges, but there were very few of them, and they were walking on thin ice. People recognized in the abstract that women could be educated and some of them should be educated, but 
but they women had to be held to a different standard. So Vellet is a college professor teaching maths to the women in the only women's college in Ulthar, um, the Ulthar Women's College, um, which means she's also kind of the keeper of the morals of the girls. And one of the girls, her best student in 20 years of teaching, uh, elopes. And she leaves a letter saying she's going to be with Stefan, uh, beautiful Stefan. And uh, Velet decides that they need to retrieve her. The problem being that the man that Clary Girat, the student, has run away with is not actually a man of their country. He's a man from the waking world. And so he's taking Clary back to the waking world where nobody from Dreamland has ever been. And in fact, nobody's entirely sure you can go. Um, but Velet, with her past as a far traveler when she was a young woman, volunteers to go. And that's the start of the quest. Right. And so one of the reviews I read describes this as a road trip story. Would you, would you call this a road trip? You know, every story that moves across space is a road trip. Um, it has the all road trip stories have picaresque elements because you have episodes based on geography or based on author's whim. That's one of the things I love about road trip stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's absolutely a road trip. Um, I think you could argue in a very strange way that it's sort of a buddy movie because she has a cat with her, even though the cat's nothing but an ordinary cat. It doesn't speak. It doesn't say funny things. It doesn't do things cats don't do, but She's not traveling alone. She's traveling with something that is that is always with her for reasons which are very confusing to everybody, including me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I'd say it is a road trip movie. I'd say a road trip movie. I would say it's a road trip book. I'm sure I'd next say, year it'll be a road trip movie. <laughs> right, right. And it's also a quest because quests always take place across geography as well. Uh, and you see this if you read really anything. But if you read uh, Lord of the Rings, you see, you know, the episodic nature of certain things that are happening. Right, right. And I thought it was really interesting that you chose to have this, to have um, Velet not have a companion that she talks to in this story. I think most stories, the first thing they would do is have a, introduce a companion for Velet to talk to. So the story is much more about her, what's going on in her head and her, what she's seeing and feeling and things like that. How much of a like what were you, what was your thought process behind that decision? I've written a lot of stories about isolated characters moving through space where they encounter others and uh, then the, they part ways. But when I'm teaching writing, uh, as a joke, I used to say, everybody should put a dog in a story. Um, because a dog randomizes things. If you have, if you are a writer and you are marching your characters through a plot, it can feel like they're being marched through a plot. You know, here's a point, here's a point. Now we have to get to here. When you add any kind of a randomizer, like a dog, which needs to be walked or a baby, which needs to be nursed, um, or anything like that, you, you shake things up a little bit because there's always the chance that something else will happen. And with this cat, it doesn't really do anything that cats don't do, but she's she does rarely talk to it, but it gives me a place where when she's looking up the stars, something warm can curl up next to her, and that gives her something she can do besides just look at the stars. It gives me a sort of tactile, um, interactive, organic uh, mover through the story. 
I mean, you mentioned earlier that in Lovecraft's stories, all the dreamers are men, and you carry that through into this, that there's almost this like cosmic sexism uh, at right. work. Um, why did you, or could you talk about, just talk about that? Yeah, all the dreamers are men. Um, all of the gods are men. Uh, all of the characters who are mentioned are men. Um, nothing, I don't know what people from the dreamland spring from except the minds of the dreamers. So my assumption is that that is some of, some of what's happening, but that also, you know, they have their own lives. They have, you know, Ulthar goes on even when there's no master dreamer there. Ulthar is still changing in its own slow way. It's behind the curve of our world. It's always behind us. Because, of course, in dreams, we tend to be nostalgic. You point backwards, not into the future in most dreams. Um, so I really wanted to think about that. I mean, what does it mean? Uh, to have a world where where everything is male, I didn't realize until after I'd written it that um, these whimsical gods that change things all the time almost exactly map onto the way it would have been for women in the 30s. That they they can shut down your college, they can you know beat you to death and not get arrested for it. They can do all these terrible things. They can take your goods and leave you destitute. They can lie to you. They're all the all the different practical ways that um, women would rule women's or men would rule women's lives, and it all is mapped into the dreamlands where whimsical gods make things happen, and everybody else has to just cope, has to work around you know, their bad days or their, you know, uh, need for rest or their, their petty rivalries. And there's actually, there's a part in the book where Velet meets Randolph Carter and he tells her, women don't dream large dreams. It is all babies and housework, tiny dreams. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that's the way, certainly back in the 30s, but I would say not even now, there's a sense, I mean, sometimes I'll read critiques of of or like reviews of women's novels and I'll, it will feel like there's a sense that well you know this is kind of a big topic this is a big story or a big novel and uh um there's this is something that it's changing all the time and it's so much better than it was 20 years ago um uh, but i feel as though this is this is the air that is changing is that sense that, well, women want to stay home. I read a lot of uh, like 1910s, 20s, and 30s magazines as research for something else I'm doing. And a lot of those, you know, women, they didn't, they weren't, they didn't really have big dreams. If you read Little Women, it's like you get, you, the, the woman who wants to be a novelist gives it all up to marry an older man and raise children. Um, Amy's the only one who doesn't, and her fallback position is that if she doesn't, sorry to spoil little women for you people, <laughs> but, but her fallback position, if she doesn't make it as an artist in Paris, is come home and marry a rich man. Um, that's, that's the world that it used to be, and that's the world that Velet lives in, um, and that's the world that Velet, in the end, is escaping from. Yeah. Well, in a big, I mean, a big theme in this book, speaking of the ending, is that, well, maybe not to spoil it, but I mean, a, a big theme is what well, you mentioned, the gods are so capricious in this world. And I mean, Lovecraft is famous for kind of transitioning horror away from um, basically Christian notions of heaven and hell and damnation being what scares you to more atheistic notions of 
the the vastness of the cosmos and human insignificance is what's right. Scary. Yeah, the cold cosmological horror of deep space. Yeah, I mean, so was that something you were thinking of when you created when you with with this theme of the the evil gods and their they're capricious, like the universe is capricious. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yet petty, because uh, by the end, I mean, a world without gods has its problems, but a world without gods also does not have the moon being pulled this way and that by, you know, whim. And so the rules apply. There are rules in a world that is not dominated by whimsical gods. And rules give people, you know, structure, give you the chance to make predictions about the future, make predictions about possibilities. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you how do you feel like this book is going to fit in? Because there's this whole industry of Lovecraftian fiction. Uh, I mean, there's like whole presses that publish nothing but Lovecraftian fiction. I mean, what do you make of make of that? That's always been the case. I mean, because Arkham House, you know, was always doing that. And August Derelith, I think he was doing it. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, yeah. But certainly, a lot of people were playing around with uh, Lovecraftian horror or Lovecraft, you know, pastiches and. Uh, um, uh, tributes and, uh, sequels and things like that. Um, I didn't realize just how prevalent, uh, the Lovecraft thing was until after I was almost finished with this book. And then I thought, well, I don't know if I want to play in this field, but, but I'm happy I did actually. I think Lovecraft has come to the foreground because of so much discussion about the World Fantasy Award, um, which is a bust of Lovecraft and uh, a lot of questions about why is fantasy being represented by somebody who's better known for his horror, who is also a racist, um, you know, in writing and uh, a lot of discussion within the field of science fiction and fantasy about this, you know, does he deserve the attention he gets, and if if so, why? And if not, why not? So right now, I think that a lot of people are pointing back to Lovecraft and saying, "I loved him, but now I'm now I see the reasons why I was always uncomfortable," um, or "I love him, and I feel like he it merits a second look." And I think a lot of people are sort of that's what they're doing. I'm seeing so many different approaches now to readdressing Lovecraft. I mean, I'm sure it'll go away. It'll be, it's a trend and five years from now we'll be done with Lovecraft and we'll be on to, I hope something like Shirley Jackson or something like that. But, but uh, in the meantime, there, there was so much going on with Lovecraft that can be explored, can be countered, or uh, you can reply to Lovecraft in so many ways. Right. Well, I don't know if you've seen, like, there's an anthology called She Walks in Shadows, which is all explicitly feminist Lovecraftian fiction. I've seen it. I've heard of it, but I made a decision not to read anybody else's Lovecraft <laughs> while I was working on mine. Yeah. There's also, I just want to, there's one called Cthulhu's Daughters, too, that's all, um, you know, women authors writing Lovecraftian stories. I haven't actually read those, but they, they look really interesting. So, yeah, we can check them out together, I guess. Right. Yeah. Well, I remember, I think it was Elizabeth Bowe who wrote or Elizabeth Bear, not both, um, who wrote, who's written a couple of things, Lovecraftian things in the past, which I found really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I did also want to talk to you about some of your short stories. Um, sure. Oh, wait, actually, well, okay, so I guess one thing I wanted to ask you about this is that this is a novella, um, right, The Dream Quest yeah. of Velvet Bow, which is sort of a very difficult kind of story to publish. 
Um, could you talk about why you chose to write it as a novella and what sort of um, what sort of market there was for it? Because John, I know that Tor.com has been doing uh, these standalone published novellas now for a little while. Um, I might very well have written a novella anyway, but knowing that I could be a novella uh, was really nice. Uh, at one point, I was talking to the book was originally much longer. There's like uh, this is about forty thousand. Uh, words, but at one point it was almost 60,000 words. And that was 20,000 words of gorgeous language um, and static scenery, which uh, somebody recommended I take out. And feeling as though I was gutting myself, I did, but it did make the book hmm. better. Um, but, but the novella length, it has some really amazing gifts. Um, there's no need for massive subplots. You can stay true to your theme, true to your topic without unnecessarily complicating it, if that is the kind of story you're telling. I do feel it's almost perfect length for quest stories because it's not, it doesn't get so long that you start to see churn and repetition. Um, you can advance a quest across 40,000 words without padding, without, you know, extra putting in other points of view or anything like that. So I do think it's a, a marvelous length that's really underutilized because nobody's been doing it. PS publishing also self or publishes standalone novellas. PS is in the UK, I believe. There are a couple of people who've experimented with it. Um, but I do think Ebooks are why we are able to write them now because people are a lot more patient with, um, you don't have to hit a, a, a length like a signature, you know, it has to be a 32 page break and he, the reader has to feel like he's getting his worth when he picks up the book. He has to say this book is worth $18 because it's this many pages. So I, I think things have changed a lot and I think there's going to be more room for novelettes even and novellas. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about this because I, I really feel like, I mean, back in the 60s and 70s, most science fiction novels were 60,000 words. Right, and, right. you know, novels have basically gotten to be twice as long uh, these days, mo almost entirely, as I understand it, for economic reasons uh, rather than artistic right, ones. Yeah. And so, you know, people haven't, haven't learned to read any faster than they ever did. So, uh, right. Know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there were a lot of reasons why books had to be long or they had to be short stories and that novellas. Um, when I worked at Tor, which was 25 years ago, um, we didn't publish novellas unless they were Michener because a novella was just nobody wanted to buy it because it didn't seem like they were getting enough value for their dollar. Um, now we read ebooks and the value for dollar isn't defined on the number of pages so much as it is how long it takes you to get through it and whether you like it. But yeah, it's wonderful now that we can write this length. It was a perfect length for science fiction and for fantasy. And so much fantasy in science fiction feels unnecessarily labored. I know a lot of people talk about how science fiction is hard to read. You know, all, it's less accessible than it used to be. And there are content reasons, but I think also just the format reason that a 60,000 word book is just easier. Yeah. I mean, whenever I talk to any of my friends who aren't involved in writing and publishing, uh, they always say, oh, I don't really read much anymore. And mm -hmm. I ask them why. And they always say, oh, well, I got such and such book and I made it halfway through it and I just didn't have time to keep reading it. And I've, you know, I'm, I'm not going to buy any right. more books if I didn't fin even finish that one. And Yeah, exactly. Whereas they'd be done with it if it was Mission of Gravity. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, so so I, I did say, so I want to talk to you about some of your actual short, short stories, though. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, one of my favorite stories of yours is Spar. Like, we can't talk to you without mentioning Spar, right? <laughs> so You um, also can't recite any of Spar. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, see, I just added an uh, explicit content warning to this podcast. Oh, sweet. So, so we're all set. Oh, good. That's good. Um, Spar was really, I'm not sure what you want to ask about it, but Spar was a really interesting story for me to write because it was... Um, it was the first, it was the first time I ever write a, wrote a story that I just said, fuck it. I don't care what people think of me or my story. This is the story it has to be. And I was really uncomfortable writing it. I was, I showed it to one person. I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Um, I had trouble rewriting it. I couldn't read the whole thing in a row. I had to read like the individual sections piece by piece and craft each one and then go read another one out of order, which since the story is told out of order, it actually works really well. I wasn't able to read the whole thing until after it had been bought by Clark's World. And then I was at, because by that time it had been read by enough other people that I was like, okay, now I'm seeing it through other eyes instead of through my own eyes. And now I can judge it with different standards. Um, so it was a very difficult story for me to write, even though the words were not hard, since it's only about 12 words in the whole thing. <laughs> um, but it was, it was a very ambitious story for me. And it kind of changed everything for me because then I realized that I was better off writing, you know, sinning boldly. Better off writing the hard stuff that satisfied me, even if people didn't like it than trying to write something that was maybe more com- conformable. Well, right. And for people who haven't read it, could you just say a little bit about what the premise is? Well, I could just read you the first sentence of it. <laughs> okay. That's always a good start um, once I find it. I have the book right here because I thought if we were going to talk about my fiction, it would yeah. be good. <laughs> um, Spar is page 199. I see they buried it towards the end of the book <laughs> so that... So half the, the people who never finish a book, they wouldn't get to it. The uh, first sentence Well, they is, should just put it first, just to, right? like, to throw yeah. down the gauntlet, you know. <laughs> Can't make it through this. You're, you're not even right. worthy to read the rest of this book. You don't even get to read the rest. Um, it, the first sentence is, In the tiny lifeboat, she and the alien fuck endlessly, relentlessly. Um, that sets the tone for the whole thing. The story is about... Um, Insofar as there is a story, it's about what happens in a lifeboat when you have two spaceships that have collided and the only survivors are this sort of weird cilia tentacled thing and this human whose point of view we're in and her attempts to establish communication or not. And it all, and there's lots of, um, sexual activity, which may or may not be communication. Um, and she has no idea. And it's, it was actually not at all about, uh, you know, a deep space ship collision, but that was the metaphor I was using. And, uh, it was a very powerful metaphor I found. Um, it was a powerful imagery, but it was also just a super powerful metaphor. It said everything I wanted it to do, every piece of discomfort about what relationships are like, I was able to put into it. Right. But I've heard you say that pe- there was a, a great deal of, um, variability in people's interpretations of <laughs> yeah yeah to my mind it seems very obvious but a lot of people um feedback has ranged from uh this is just tentacle porn plain and simple um to uh this is uh this is all about a marriage gone wrong 
Uh, and other interpretations either. People have had uh, thought of alternate endings, ways they wanted to, it to end that were different. Um, but a lot of people have seen different things in it. Um, a lot of people have seen different people being, you know, some people will think she's the aggressor. Some people will think it's the alien that's the aggressor. Um, this one doesn't get as much variability as ponies does, but, um, but it does, it does get very strong reactions. Well, okay. Well, I, I want to get to ponies next, but, but first I want to ask, so you mentioned that you had a great deal of apprehension about showing the story to anyone. Has it turned out that your fears were overblown or was, was it about what you thought it was going to be? <laughs> My fears were pretty overblown. Um, but I also was very nice. Uh, Neil Clark insulated me from the, because there was a certain amount of sort of um, slagging that went on in the comments. And if it was just personal abuse, he just cut it. He just deleted it from the comments, uh, which was fantastic. If it was uh, um, critiques of the story, he left it. Um, and that was that was fine. I'm I'm always very comfortable with people's critiques of a story. Um, that's everybody. Once it is out of my hands, it is not my story anymore. Um, and that's part of why it's hard for me not to keep fiddling because I keep wanting to address something. But it's not my story. And if somebody wants to read it and read it as a lighthearted sex comedy, that's not my. I'm not the person who can tell them no. Um, and that's. Uh, that's sort of the situation I found myself in with that. But um, every so often, somebody writes me and is, either says it's brilliant or says it's a really messed up story, um, both of which are true. <laughs> 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 Things can be both good and bad. Um, and I'm okay with that. Um, and pretty much that's what they say about all my stories now, one way or another. So, uh, so I'm okay with that too. Mm. I mean, do you remember at this point what the initial spark for that story was? Like what the first image or character mood or something was? Yeah, actually. The, well, the first sentence was the one I just read. Um, but the first inspiration was I'd been working, I just, I'd been working on this long intellectual novel that I eventually shelved. And at some point I said to somebody, you know, I am just so damn tired of writing this book. I want to write something that is about uh, two people in a lifeboat fucking, because that's simple, right? That'll be easy. Um, and then it transmuted in conversation to, okay, human and an alien in a lifeboat fucking. But then I couldn't figure out how to get an alien into a lifeboat on the Pacific Ocean. So, so then I thought, well, what about space? And then that first line came in and it stopped being funny. It started to be deadly serious and it all gelled around that first because once you've got a first sentence like that i mean you have to pay off you don't get to back off you don't get to change your mind about your language you don't get to change your mind about your content that is a first sentence that de demands a difficult story if i didn't want to write the story that first line needed then i needed a different first line right well it's interesting that it kind of started as, out as a joke because some of my stories have started out as jokes and then turned into serious stories Yes, and exactly. I heard Stephen King say that when he knows, someone asked him, what, how do you know, if you have an idea, how do you know if it's good or not? And he said, if it makes me laugh, I know it's a good idea. Right. I think that's true. I'm working on something right now where it started as a joke, um, just a phrase that I use all the time. I'm always talking about, you know, um, uh, seething swarms of this or that animal. And I was talking about chickens and I and I started thinking about seething swarms of chickens, you know, crossing, you know, covering the landscape. And that was the start of this. And it was all very funny. And then I realized, oh, wait, 
You know, if your chickens are raptors and if your raptors are like fire ants, there's nothing funny about this story. And uh, so I'm in the middle of maybe maybe the darkest story I've ever written, which the bar is pretty high <laughs> for that. <laughs> okay, but so something that is a joke, I think, is the bacon remix of Spar. Could oh, you... yeah. Um, bacon remix was 100% a joke. Um, the It was for a fundraiser that um, John, John Ordover uh, was doing a fundraiser for um, a Brooklyn school. And he did something he called the Bacon-thology, and he asked us to sort of reimagine fiction through a bacon filter. And so I changed everything to bacon. So in the tiny lifeboat, she and the alien eat bacon endlessly, relentlessly. And I found that it didn't change anything in the story. It says the exact same things about relationships and about communication. It says the exact same things, except it says it all with bacon instead of with sex. <laughs> well, pretty much the same thing, right? Almost. Okay, so yeah, so let's get on to, to ponies. You mentioned. Um, you want to just say what that's about? Ponies is a really, really short story. I think it may be the shortest story to ever win the Nebula. Um, that super short story. The theory is that little girls, when they're, they always have a pony with a capital P, and ponies look a lot like My Little Ponies. I did extensive research for this by watching every single episode of My Little Pony, um, and my eyes were bleeding by the end. Um, but uh, everybody has a pony, and the pony has a horn, like a unicorn, and little wings, like a pegasus, and they all can talk, because every little girl wants her pony to talk to her. And there is a party that happens when you are of a certain age, like 9 or 10, when other little girls are very important to you, when you bring your pony to this party, and something terrible things happen. The pony has to give up two of its three special characteristics in order to fit in, in order for you to be one of the girls. And that's what this story is about. Um, Barbara and her pony, Sunny, go to the, what's called the cutting out party. Right. And is that, I, I heard in an interview, the way you said it made it sound like there's something, there's an actual type of party that this is based on? Uh... Well, sort of. When I was a little girl, I mean, little girls have little parties all the time. And um, when they're in that click stage, which is sort of nine to 11, when girls become really clickish, really um, sort of rankest, really, you know, you're in, you're out. Um, there's a lot of sort of viciousness if you're one of the outside girls. And those parties, um, like birthday parties and Halloween parties and, you know, pool parties and all those things, who is invited and who's not is very political. Um, so that's what I was thinking of when I wrote this was being a little girl and having all the other little girls be invited to a birthday party and me and one other not. Um, and that, so yeah, they, I mean, they don't really have parties where they cut pieces off horses or anything. <laughs> I'm just here to say. <laughs> Not that I know of, anyway. <laughs> well, so um, so what was what, what were your impressions when you watched every single episode of My Little Pony? Uh, I watched there at that point. Uh, Friendship is Magic was just starting. So for you pony lovers out there, um, that gives that dates that when I was writing that. But I watched some of the old stuff, and then I watched some of the new stuff. And the new stuff was working really, really hard to 
to step away from the kind of, it was friendship is magic. It's about, you know, we all stand up for each other. We all have each other's backs. If one of us feels insecure, we do, we all uh, um, try to uh, band together to help her feel better and stuff like that. My feeling about that was that that's a lovely conceit. And if that changed the way that little girls interacted, that would be fantastic, but that that's not likely. So I read it or I watched them and I thought, this is so improbable that this is just fantasy land. This is not, this doesn't help anybody except by showing you a fantasy world where things might be better. Have you followed the brony phenomenon at all? I have. I have. In fact, I read the, an introduction to a brony anthology that was done um, by Kazka Press in Seattle a few years back. Um, I think it's really interesting. I think um, I think it's entertaining. I love when people cross into other fandoms uh, in unexpected ways. And I think that the brony thing when it first started was absolutely that. Um, I think that, I, I mean, I'm all in favor of people exploring other people's fandoms. Well, because I, I sort of found out about it because I, I just watch lots and lots of documentaries. And there was a documentary about bronies that I just watched because I watch every documentary. And I thought it was really interesting because they were making the point that, you know, that boy, the entertainment that appeals to young boys like Transformers, we just take it for granted that this should be made into $100 million movies that everyone right. should watch. But if but where's the ponies? But yeah. If, yeah. But if if it's something that appeals to little girls, uh, it, you know, it, it's it, there's just this huge amount of hostility to people being into it, and right. how deeply embedded the sexist um, assumptions are there. Right, and I think that um, the Gem movie actually is an interesting example of that because Gem, not the favorite IP of little girls, but it's the IP that adult men look at and think should be the favorite IP of little girls. So adult men looked at Jim and said, what do little girls want to be? They want to be rock stars. Let's do a movie about little girls being rock stars. Not understanding that sort of the things that are happening that are not what they're expecting. So ponies and ponies, goodness knows, all of those ponies have very conventional gender roles. You know, none of those ponies is, um, you know, wants to be a plumber. You know, none of those ponies is interested in rebuilding old cars. Um, the ponies are all doing what girls are expected to do, but they are trying to do them at the very highest level. Hmm. What, what did you think about the response to your story, Ponies? I mean, did you ever think it would win the Nebula Award or just? I really did not. Um, I had no idea. Um, I, for one thing, I thought it was too short. For another, I thought it was a girl's story and pretty explicitly a girl's story, which is not to say the nebulas aren't aware of that, but I thought this is a story about a specific phenomenon that is specific to one age and one gender, really. Um, but it does have broader implications and applications, it turned out. And I also just thought, you know, it just, it just wasn't, I mean, cause it was written in that very plain spoken voice. And I thought it's not a voice that people will respond to. Um, so I was very surprised when it was nominated and, um, delighted and honored. And then when it won, um, and it won, it, uh, shared the award with Harlan Ellison of all <laughs> people. Um, I was staggered by that. I did not actually pass out, um, <laughs> which is good. Which which was uh, I think a major victory on my part. <laughs> I mean, what sort of fan mail or re other sort of responses have you gotten to it? 
um, it's taught a lot, it turns out. Um, I get So I get a lot of teachers writing me and telling me things about it. Um, it uh, people have had, as I said earlier, you know, very different interpretations of it. Everything from this is a story about female circumcision to this is a story about male circumcision, go figure, um, to this is a story about the way girls are, or this is a story about how parents force their daughters to, com- you know, to conform to, I mean, so many different interpretations. Um, people who have refuted it and said, that's not the way my friends were. Um, boys who've read it and said, that's the way my friends were. Um, all these different things. Every so often I get a personal email. This one I don't get as much as some of my other fiction, but, but every so often I get a personal email from somebody, um, who tells me a story. Um, and, uh, often the story is about what it was like for them to be bullied and about how they totally understood, you know, Barbara's, you know, quandary in the story. Okay, so you mentioned that how often your stories get these vastly different interpretations. Do you think that's true of all stories? Or do you think there's something particular about the way that you tell stories that lends itself to these, um, you know, vastly differing interpretations? (laughs) That's a good question, too. Um, I think that one answer is that it's always possible to read a story in any of a thousand ways. Um, and I used to get in trouble in college in poetry class because I would invariably argue that every religious poem was a sex poem. <laughs> and I would point to all the language and I'd be like, see, see, this is the charged language of sexuality. And eventually the professor and I would end up in a Donnybrook and I would storm out of class and I'd have to take it again the next semester. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it took me, I almost didn't get out of college because of one poetry class. Um, but I, so I, I, and I know from experience with my friends that we do a lot of that. We say, you know, if you, what if you read Pride and Prejudice, except you're thinking about it as it's all about the horses. How does that change the story? You know, it's like, if you have to think about that, you, I bet you don't even remember their horses and yet horses are pivotal to the plot. So we were always playing these sort of party tricks, like reinterpreting stories according to this filter or that. And I think most stories can be, that can be done with. You can always say, well, I think this is a subversive, you know, I think Tessa the Durbervilles is a subversive feminist, has a subversive feminist subtext or something. But I think that, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I maybe do more of it than other people. Um, but I do think that because I'm often, because my language is often so precise that the fact that I leave something purposefully vague makes people crazy and they put their thumb on that spot and they start pushing at it, trying to figure out, you know, what exactly it means. Other people who are more diffuse writers, um, and I'm thinking specifically of The Hortlock by Kelly Link, which is a brilliant story. Um, but if you ask somebody what that's about, you know, the interpretations are everywhere because you really have a hard time telling what it's about um that's the gift of that story it's so broad and so strange and diffuse and wondrous Hmm. that's interesting okay so i'm I'm sure our producer john joseph adams would also want me to mention your story the apartment dweller's bestiary which he picked for his uh best american science fiction and fantasy Uh, you want to tell us about that story the apartment dweller's bestiary is um I now know as part of three stories, um, they are, it's a collection of somewhere between 16 and 19 very, very short stories about the animals that live in your apartment when you're alone. 
Um, so they live under your bed or they, you know, live in your oven because you never cook or they, um, they party in your shoes at night and all the little animals are, they're the company that fills the empty space of an apartment. Um, there are two that I'm working right after the story I'm finishing right now. There are two other apartment dwellers, um, collect compendia, which are going to be, uh, different stages of adulthood. But, um, the three of them together will be about a 10,000 word super random thing. <laughs> so the bestiary I wrote, um, and I originally wrote it because I wanted it to be a chapbook with illustrations. Um, but I have a full-time job. Plus I do a lot of stuff for this center for the study of science fiction. And I just didn't have time to organize illustrators or anything like that. So, so if any illustrators are listening to this, they are certainly welcome to write to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is we, we, how much, to what extent would you say those little sketches are autobiographical? Do you have a lot of experience living by yourself in apartments? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, I wrote all of them when I was living in, um, my beautiful apartment, uh, the apartment I just moved out of, which was a third floor in a 1910s apartment building. And there was a crawl space above, uh, between the roof and the ceiling and squirrels lived in there. So I would be, and birds lived in the bathroom vents and spiders lived in the ceiling. And at any given time, I'd be reading or sleeping or looking at the window and I'd hear scuttering noises that weren't mine and they weren't my cats. And I would think that's, <laughs> those are the beasts, you know, we, you never live alone. You're always surrounded by the other things that share your space. And so that was the inspiration for it. But yeah, I, I had at that point lived alone for uh, almost a decade. And uh, I'd gotten really used to sort of the weird noises and the sudden discoveries. You know, obviously a mouse has been living in my oven kind of <laughs> discoveries. Memo to self, use oven more often. <laughs> well, it, well, you, I mean, in, in New York, you have to use it for storage, right? Your right, oven. right. Well, that's what I always thought. That's where you put the pots. <laughs> It's where you put baked goods if you don't want animals to get to them. Hmm. Well, because I, I thought the story also, I mean, in addition to like squirrels and things, I mean, I, th I thought it also reminds me a lot about cats and dogs and the way people right. get attached to them or uh, use them as status symbols or things like that. Right. Or this, or as substitutes for company. There's one called the Orco where where if you fall asleep with a book in bed and you take your glasses off and then the orco is there and you reach across, it's almost like all the pieces of someone, I say in the story. You know, so all the ways that they substitute for, you know, company or the ways that they console you for the lack of company or reward you for the lack of company. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you mentioned the the Center for the Study of Science Fiction, which is actually, I, I, I first met you at that back in 2003. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Took a, a science fiction writing class there. Um, so yeah, I was just curious what's um, you know what's new with the Center for the Study of Science Fiction. Well, we are in the middle of um, four new initiatives, which uh, three of which I can't talk about. Curse it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the one I can talk about is that the University of Kansas, which has always had a lively science fiction uh, sort of degree and program, uh, we're we are uh, starting a row a 
sort of a vertical column of science fiction courses that are spe- that are specifically science fiction colon something or other. So science fiction, uh, the canon, science fiction books that should be canon, science fiction, Afrofuturism, science fiction, slipstream, science fiction, fantasy, because we're using science fiction inclusively um, because of tradition mostly. Um, so we're starting to pull this together. And part of this is uh, um, because we are in uh, well into the process of uh, building a science fiction certificate, which would be independent of a degree. Um, once we've done that, that would allow people to get a degree in anything, English, French, you know, microbiology, and also get a science fiction certificate, um, which would show, indicate that they have some knowledge about science fiction and also some knowledge about extrapolative thinking patterns, because one of our sort of core premises is that science fiction is not so much a literature as it is a intellectual mode of enquiry that allows you to explore things in ways that nothing else does. Well, and you also do these sort of week-long summer workshops, right? Because that's what I do. Yeah, two weeks long. Um, in the summertime, the, the center uh, does uh, a workshop, a two-week residential workshop for mostly for not mostly not for students, but we always end up with a student or two, usually adults of various sorts. Um, one for short fiction and one for novels. Um, they're both intensive workshops, and everybody comes out of it strung out and exhausted. Um, it's we then have the Campbell Conference, which is the conference at which the Sturgeon and the uh, uh, Campbell Award for Best Novel are given. There are two Campbell Awards, by the way. One is the Campbell that's given at the Hugo's, and one is the Campbell that we give, which is the Best Novel of the Year. Um, that, that Campbell Conference this year is actually the academic track of Worldcon, which is happening even as this thing is aired. Um, then the second two weeks are three courses, and now we're going to be adding a fourth, which are advanced workshops in novels and short fiction. Um, we are starting a young adult workshop, which would be for writers of young adult fiction. And uh, there is a teaching institute, um, which is actually an excuse to read 26 science fiction novels or 100 science fiction short stories and discuss them in a two-week period. Mm-hmm. So the two weeks is now expanded to be four weeks. And by the end of that, we are very exhausted, but it's also the most exhilarating thing I've ever done. Yeah. And I saw you're going to be teaching at Clarion West next year. Yes. I'm very excited about that too. I taught there a couple of years ago and I absolutely adored it. Um, I'll be teaching, I believe week three, which means that I'm the week, I guess I'm the week where I start to put people back together Mm -hmm. after they realize how much they have to learn. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, so plenty of opportunities to study with Kish people if, you, uh, if you're interested. Yes, yes. Come and study with me. <laughs> um, this is kind of a random question, but I was kind of curious. I remember when I met you, you said that you had gotten a tattoo for each of your first two books. Oh, yeah, I was, yeah. I was wondering if you've ever gotten any more. Like, how do you celebrate a novella, publishing a novella? Do you get, like, yeah, half a tattoo? Yeah, just a little or... tiny tattoo. Just black work. <laughs> you know. um, I, uh, actually, I have not maintained that. And I was just thinking about that the other day. I did get, when I was a rock climber, I got climbing tattoos. Um, but I didn't continue with that. And now I've got, I will have had two books come out in a two-year period. So I have to decide, am I going to get like a big garland of other animals or what am I going to do here? That'd be kind of fun, actually. I could get a little bird and give each of the birds a name or something. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. So yeah, so we're pretty much out of time. So just, uh, do you have any other projects you want to mention or maybe just remind people of the stuff you have coming out? 
Um, sure, of course. I've got, um, yeah, the, the Dream Quest of LFO is coming out. Um, in fact, in two days, I finally saw a copy of it and I could not be happier. You can't yeah, see gorgeous, that I'm clutching it to cover. myself. Yeah, they did a wonderful job with it. Um, I have a French edition of The Man Who Bridged the Mist coming out in two months through, uh, Belial, I believe, uh, which I'm very excited for because French is one of the few languages I can read. So. I can actually pretend that I'm reading somebody else's book. Uh, I've got, and then next year, I'm really excited that the Riverbank, which is my sort of uh, re retake on Wind in the Willows, is coming out from Small Beer. That'll be next summer. In the meantime, I expect I'll have a bunch of short fiction coming out because that's what I'm concentrating on right now. All right, great. And so, yes, yeah, so everyone will go check out The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow. The author is Kish Johnson. And so, kids, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Kiz Johnson for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Stefan Bushman, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.